0: We're um, doing a series called I, and um, the series is really driven by, um, maybe think about this question, have you ever just gotten sick of yourself, where you just, you literally just got to the end of yourself, so to speak, because you're so consumed with I, you're always thinking about yourself, and I don't know, have you ever had one of those moments where you just, you're like, man, I'm so tired of being so selfish, and always thinking about me, and you know, what I need and what I want and when I want it and all of that kind of stuff, you just got to the point of, like, please tell me that there's something more than I, something more than just how I'm so focused on me. Um, At the heart of this series is that we would get over ourselves, that we would not be I-centric people, uh, and we would certainly not be an I-centric community, that we as a community would be driven by uh, loving God as He, in response to how He has absolutely loved us. And so that's really at the heart of I, as we're walking through uh, the Christmas narrative. And this morning, uh, the message title is called I Murder. Uh, It seems an extreme uh, title, uh, for sure, but the story that we're looking at uh, very specifically this morning is a pretty um, tragic story, that you won't see this story on any Hallmark card. I guarantee it, because it would just be too bloody, it would be too depressing, and... uh, But this is part of the Christmas story, is a story of one man and the first assassination attempt on this boy Jesus, on this baby uh, Jesus. Um, Thinking about Christmas, uh, one of the things that we celebrate at Christmas is Emmanuel, which means with us is God. Um, Isaiah 7, 14 says it like this, "'Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son,' And we'll call him Emmanuel. That's a prophecy that was 700 some odd years well before Jesus showed up. As I think about uh, Christmas, um, we love to celebrate that God is with us, uh, but have you ever asked the question, why would God want to be with us? Like we celebrate that, we enjoy that, we embrace that, we sing songs about it, but have you ever just asked the question, you know, hmm. Why would God want to be with us? I will be the first to stand on this next question. Shouldn't have stood. Okay, so I'm standing, all right? If you, and you're most likely, everyone's going to be standing with me here in a second, so just listen. If you've ever lied, if you've ever cheated, uh, if you've ever had a prideful thought, uh, a lustful thought, if you've ever been selfish, self-centered, uh, please stand to any one of those things, okay? Uh, think about it for a minute. If you've ever <laughs> stolen or gossiped or coveted, okay, so it's safe to say that all of us at some point in time have done one of these things. So my question uh, to each of us is why would God be interested in being with us? Why would God be interested in a people that was lying, cheating, stealing, covenant, prideful, lustful, arrogant. Like, why on earth would God look at a community like this, a people, a humanity like this, and say, yes, I want to be with you? So you can be seated. I hope you get the point that all of us had to stand. And as I was thinking about that, uh, it really drove home the point to me, why does God want to be with me? Why does God want to be with you? It's one thing to celebrate and sing, uh, "God with us and Emmanuel." So why? Either God just didn't know, like God was shocked when He sent His Son Jesus into the world and was like, "Oh Jesus, I'm I'm sorry, I didn't know how depraved the world was." Come back. Obviously, I don't think that was the answer. I think God knew very well. God has perfect knowledge. Job talks about that and. Job 37, where he has perfect knowledge of all things. Uh, Another verse, Psalm 147 says this, Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. So God understood fully the condition of humanity when he sent Jesus to be with us, to dwell among us. So knowing that God knew that, God intentionally, purposefully uh, came to humanity. And we all just stood, okay? So point being, we're we're all sinful, we've all rebelled. Point being, why does God want to be with us? And this is not the exhaustive list, but in thinking about just this question, love drove him to enter in. And you may have heard this message maybe since you were a kid, or maybe this is a message you're hearing for the first time. Jesus loves you. Jesus is the demonstration of God's love for you. Just, if you can, listen to some of these verses. John 1.14, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Full of grace, full of favor, full of love. Stick with me on this. I'm trying to answer the question, if we are as sinful as we are, Why would God want to be with us? Love drove him to enter in. John 3.16, you may have heard of this verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. God so loved the world, you and I comprise the world, that he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God not only entered in to be with us now, but that we would be with him for eternity. And then Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why did God enter into the mess of humanity, the mess of our world, our lives? Love drove him to enter in. And the second one I'll give you is just to redeem A great verse that speaks to this Christmas narrative is Galatians 4. But when the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, and this is the answer to why. To redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. It's absolutely amazing to me that despite our wickedness of being sinful and rebelling against God, God said, I want to be redeemed with my people, with my creation. So he sends his son Jesus to redeem people back to himself. Why? So that you would be called a child of God. I don't know if you've thought about that recently, but it is amazing to me that God would want to look at me and say, that's my son, or look at you and say, that's my daughter. Like, how amazing is it that God, creator of all, holy, looks at an unholy people and says, I want you to be my child, my son, my daughter. And the only way that happens is if I send my son to redeem you back to me. John 1.12 says this, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become a child of God or children of God. Jesus did not, God didn't send Jesus into the world to you know, end poverty, end famine, end all wars between each of us. Jesus was sent specifically into the world to end a war between us and God. There was a tremendous gap between us and God because of our rebellion, and God sent Jesus to bridge that gap between us and God. So at some point, God will make the world right and put put all things right, but before he does that, he puts you right. He puts myself right. He puts us right with him. I've just been um, really dwelling on that question of, it's one thing to say God with us, but you have to ask the question, why does God want to be with us? It's because he loves you, and he wants to be redeemed, reconciled with you, that you would be his child, his son, or his daughter. And he did that through his son by God's choosing, not by us working our way towards God. Now, the story we're going to look at uh, today, um, again, is looking at um, at Jesus. He's probably about two years old at the time we're going to jump into this story, but in many ways, it's a story of contrasts. There's a story of some people who chose to worship uh, Jesus, and then there's a, the story, the contrast is, of one individual in particular who chose to try to assassinate or murder Jesus. Story of contrast, one group of men decide to worship, one individual decides to try to murder Jesus. And it's interesting because I don't know if you see this, even just looking back this week, Your life was a series of choices, of contrast. You could have done this, but you chose to do this. So just look back over the last few days. How many of you would look back and say, you know what, given that situation again, I I would have done that differently? Meaning, how many of us let words fly out of our mouth that once they flew, we're like, oh, I chose poorly? Or if we, just we make choices every single day and how many choices we would want to have back And as I see this story here, one one chose to worship, one chose to seek out to kill him. Um, If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to um, Matthew chapter 2. And it's very interesting if you consider your choices as you open up to Matthew 2. Your choices really reflect I, Meaning, your choices really reflect what you think about God, or your choices really reflect what you think about self, meaning I. So, as you consider the choices that you made this past week, just look back. Were your decisions, choices more reflective of I at the center, or were they more reflective of God at the center? And I hope that you have a very high view of God, meaning, I very much believe that God speaks. I very much believe that God speaks daily. I very much believe that God is in constant communication of wanting us to hear his voice speaking to us. So our choices that we make that don't reflect him are not reflective that God doesn't speak to us or that God's not initiating or God's not revealing himself to us. Our choices really reflect what we think about I or what we think about Jesus, he. It's, if you look back through the whole Christmas narrative so far, God is incredibly active in speaking to people. Spoke to Zachariah the priest and said, your wife, through an angel, uh, your wife, Elizabeth, is going to have a son. Yes, she's well along in years, but God is going to make this happen. God spoke, revealed to the shepherds, and the shepherds went to see him. God spoke to Mary. What a message Mary received. We look at that last week. Yeah, your 12, 13-year-old girl You're vowed to be married to a man, but you're going to be pregnant uh, by the the Spirit of God. That's what God revealed to her, to Joseph. God spoke to Joseph and said, you're going to be thinking that you want to divorce Mary because she's claiming to be pregnant, but yet a virgin. You're going to think to divorce her. Joseph, stick with her. The story we hear today, uh, God speaks to the Magi, wise men, uh, kingly-type figures speaks and says, there's a king you need to go see and need to go worship. And then he reveals even to Herod. And what God reveals to Herod uh, through even the Magi is this, Uh, and I want you to bank this, if you will. This is Herod's reaction to what he hears and sees of Jesus. So to Herod, Jesus will be the biggest threat to the kingdom of I. So the question that each of us have to wrestle with is, what will I do with Jesus? Small I. All of these people, Zechariah, shepherds, Mary, Joseph, magi, responded to God's voice speaking to them in an appropriate way. Herod did not respond to what God spoke to him, revealed to him through uh, these magi. Jesus will be the biggest threat to the kingdom of I. So our question that we'll start with, well, kind of start with, and definitely end with is, how does I respond to Jesus? Okay? Extreme contrast here of some who worship, some who murder, but this is the story in Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. Okay, Bethlehem in Judea. Bethlehem is so small that Matthew had to make clear. Bethlehem, Judea area. Okay, It's about five miles outside of Jerusalem. Most people see this as a very insignificant town, but at least in the Old Testament, this is the place where Jacob's wife, Rachel, was buried. This is the place where Ruth and Boaz crashed and they lived. This is the place where King David was born. And ultimately, this is the place where Jesus uh, was born and resided in his early years. Okay, We're introduced to a guy named Herod. Scripture talks about a lot of different Herods. This, is, no, this Herod that we're looking at, this is the one. Meaning, this is Herod the Great. He was one of the most evil, wicked men uh, of the time, in, and his rule was for the better part about 30, 35 years from 37 BC to 4 BC. Okay? Herod was so hated by the Jews that in order to make sure that when he died, people did not rejoice and celebrate, people would mourn, uh, he had a law written that upon his death, the most influential people uh, in uh, Jerusalem were to be slaughtered, so that upon his death, there would be no rejoicing, there would be great mourning, not at the loss of Herod, but at the loss of the Jews that he had killed, okay? Historian Josephus said this about Herod. He was a man who was cruel to all alike and one who easily gave in to anger and was contemptuous of justice. This was a wicked man. Killed three of his own sons, assassinated three of his own sons because they threatened his throne. Okay, so this was a man who was utterly bent on evil. We we meet Herod here. We also meet the Magi, traditionally known as very kingly type figures, wise men as the story goes. Now, the tradition about these guys, I know the tradition says there was three wise men, And we kind of get that because they were carrying three different gifts. Um, It is plural, so it's at least more than one, but it could have been five, it could have been ten, it could have been three. Point being, God spoke to these wise men, and tradition would say that they lived in a place called Parthia, which is ancient Babylon, okay? That's 900 miles away from where Jesus was in Bethlehem. So God spoke, if this is in fact where they lived, and most people agree that's where they lived, two years prior, uh, when Jesus was born, God spoke to these men and said, a Savior's been born, Begin the journey to Bethlehem to go and see him and worship him. Two years, 900 miles, these men travel to see Jesus. They come and have an audience with Herod. Why do they have an audience with Herod? Well, because they're very dignified, kingly type of men. And they come to Herod and they ask Herod a question. They ask Herod this, this question of, "Where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. If you're Herod, how are you hearing this question? Like, how threatened are you feeling right now? Where's my star? Like, where's my audience of people who came to worship me? Like, at the center of Herod's world was Herod. And so this question provokes Herod, obviously, to get angry of, what do you mean a king has been born? And as soon as he hears that there is a new king, Herod immediately feels threatened. The greatest threat to the kingdom of I will be Jesus. Okay? Okay. Story goes on in uh, Matthew 2, uh, verse 3. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. Okay? Meaning unsettled. And it's interesting that it says all of Jerusalem was unsettled with Herod. They were disturbed with him. They were not disturbed because there was a new king. They were disturbed because of what Herod might do. Herod was known as a very reckless leader a ruthless leader. So they were disturbed. If Herod's disturbed, something bad is going to happen. This is what Herod does, Matthew 2, verse 4 through 8. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. Answer, in Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet uh, has written. And this is the prophet Micah. Uh, quoting uh, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Herod called the magi secretly and found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, Report to me so that I may go and worship him. Okay? Herod, it sounds good. It sounds like he's, wow, maybe he's had a change of heart. He's actually interested in going and worshiping Jesus. But Herod is a master manipulator. Isn't it interesting that the people who hate him most are the people that he calls to first? Let me get the religious people around me. Let me get these Jews around me who don't think very highly, don't think much of me, maybe if I get their opinion and ask for their advice, I'll begin to win them over. But ultimately, he's manipulating and using them to achieve his end game, which is, as we'll see here in a second, to kill Jesus. Now, Matthew takes a break in this story, and he's gonna come back to Herod, but he wants to focus on the Magi, and they arrive and they see Jesus. Now, Mary and Joseph, it's about two years after Jesus has been born. So they are comfortably settled into the suburbs of Bethlehem, probably enjoying life and doing well. Things have probably returned to a little bit of normal, the events that happened two years earlier. And then all of a sudden in Matthew 9, or Matthew 2, verse 9, life was interrupted for them two years earlier, and life is about to get interrupted uh, dramatically for them again. So this is Matthew chapter 2. Uh, picking up at uh, um, verse 9. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star um, settled. Um, hang on. And, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with, the, with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, of incense, and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. I love that God just speaks in the most practical ways. In a dream these men have, don't go back the way of Herod because it won't go well for you. Okay? So, in this, there's a pretty obvious detail that you will not be able to answer And I certainly can't answer. How does a star move and stop? They've been following this star for two plus years. I mean, imagine tracking this star for two years, and it says they were overjoyed when it stopped over the place where the child was. They tracked this thing for two years, and all of a sudden a star stops over a specific location. How does that work? Like, what did that look like? Okay, I, I can't explain any of that, except to say when God is doing what he is doing, miraculous things are happening. I personally remember what Jesus said, or what the angel said to Mary in uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 37, when she's absolutely confused, like, I'm a virgin, and you're telling me I'm going to be pregnant. How does this, I just, I don't get it. And the angel says to her, for nothing is impossible with God. So I can't explain a star, how it moves, and then it stops right over an exact location except to say when God is involved and God is in the equation, there is nothing that is not possible for him. Now, if you're Mary, you're now about 15, 16 years old, so you've you've achieved womanhood, right? Barely a teenager still. If you're Mary and these men, whether it's three or four or five, show up at your doorstep, And by the way, because they were dignified men, kingly men, wise men, they would have been traveling with a rather large company, okay? They would have had security people with them. They would have had people there to care and attend to them, okay? They may have even had some of their family traveling. So this is not just three or four people. This is probably quite a posse of people who are traveling with them. So Mary looks out her window, and she sees these dignified men show up at her doorstep, They knock on the door, they come in, and they see Jesus with Mary, and they bow down and they worship him. I don't know if I painted a good enough picture for you, but if you're Mary, what on earth are you thinking? Are you not completely, first of all, just amazed? Who are these men? How did they know who my son was? You came from where? 900 miles away? So outside of all of the questions of how did you know and where did you come from, how encouraged and amazed do you think Mary was when they dropped to their knee? Men, stately men, dignified men, dropped to the floor and they began to worship this child, no longer a baby, this child, a two-year-old child named Jesus. And not only did they Drop down to one of their knees and bow down and worship Jesus, they opened up their treasury. They opened up and showered Jesus with incredibly expensive gifts. I'm guessing that Mary was greatly encouraged at what God had once, once again done. These men had traveled for two years. They showed up at Mary's doorstep. They bowed down and worshiped, and they showered Jesus with gifts. Just as a side note, as I was thinking about that, I just wonder how encouraged Mary was. And God used these other individuals to encourage Mary just to say, Mary, you're still right in the middle of my will. I'm still in this. I am blessing. I am providing. I am taking care of. All those those things you heard two years ago, are still true. This is my son. And as I think about how God wants to encourage people, we can find encouragement just from God directly himself. God speaking directly to us. We can find encouragement through just reading God's story. And how many times have you ever just opened up God's, opened up scriptures and you're like, man, thank you, God, that's a timely verse for this situation I'm in in my life. But as I consider how many times God has encouraged me, it's through others. Like God has sent someone, just to say, Michael, I don't know if this will resonate, but I just wanted to encourage you with this. I'm like, man, you have no idea how much that actually resonates right now. Sometimes it's just a very simple note, an email, could even be a text. God uses us to encourage others. God uses these magi, these wise men, these kingly men to encourage this teenage girl. And I just wonder as I'm thinking about this now, maybe God wants to use you to encourage someone else. We're always at the world center of I is I. I'm thinking about myself. Breaking free from that kingdom of I, I wonder if there's someone here today that God is saying, I want to use you to encourage that individual. Why? Because they're struggling, they're battling for their faith right now, or they need confirmation or affirmation or assurance, or they've been obedient and I just want to bless them with confirmation that I am so with them. So I just wonder, maybe there's many of us in here who would be the answer or the source of encouraging someone else. And if that's you, be used of God to bless someone else. Be used of God to encourage someone else. Magi, they brought gifts of worship. Uh, They worshiped and they showered Jesus with gifts. I don't want to make a big deal of these gifts as is often made the significance behind each because ultimately, I don't think these Magi knew, well, this gift is going to signify his deity and this gift is going to signify his resurrection and this gift is going to signify this. These were very common gifts, at least in the ancient East, that were given to kings. They give a gift of gold. Gold is very expensive, a gift for kings. Incense, the type of incense that was given was an incense that would only be used in the most holy of places, on the altar. It would be used as a sweet aroma. And then the myrrh, an expensive perfume that was actually used um, uh, to help cover the stench of decaying bodies. It seems weird to give the gift of myrrh. Like, here you go, Mary, Just in case things don't work out with Jesus, here's some myrrh to make the stems go away. Again, I don't want to make a big deal that, well, that's foreshadowing his resurrection and the incense is foreshadowing or speaking to his deity, because ultimately I don't know if that's what they were really thinking. But I do know that they gave the best of what they had in the gifts. And as we're going to read on here um, in this story... You ever wonder how Mary and Joseph paid for their life in Egypt? How they even got to Egypt? Isn't it ironic that God brings the gifts and then says, it's time for you to pack up and move to Egypt, which wasn't next door to Bethlehem? God brings not only the encouragement of the Magi, but he brings provision of his next uh, steps to Mary and Joseph. And before we look at, go back to Herod. I love how God speaks again pretty clearly to the Magi in a dream, don't go back to Herod. And this is a question I'm going to come back to, but how important is obedience? Like when God speaks, if put it this way, if God spoke to them the message, don't go back to Herod, and they're like, ah, I don't know, it could be God, it could be my dream, I could have had too much salsa last night, and that's influencing all of this. Like if they were disobedient in this moment they die. They go back to Herod they would be killed for sure. Because Herod is already disturbed and we'll see in a second furious with this baby Jesus, this child Jesus. Matthew 2:13-14. When they had gone an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. From where they are in Bethlehem, just to the border of Egypt, it's about a 50, 55-mile trek. I don't know if you've ever traveled with a two-year-old, but, you know, 55 miles, you know, in a suburban, it's pretty easy. But they didn't have suburbans and car seats and DVD players and cars back in the day. So this is not like an easy trek that that Joseph, Mary, and Jesus are about to embark on. But I don't think they just went to Egypt 50 miles to the border. There is a community of about a million Jews who lived in Alexandria, which was 200 miles further into Egypt. So I believe they were, going, they were sent to Egypt, not just to the border, but to live amongst the other Jews that were dispersed uh, in Egypt in Alexandria. 250 miles, they make a trek uh, to Egypt to live there in safety until Herod was dead, and thus fulfilling, as as Matthew says, the scripture in Hosea 11, verse 1, out of Egypt, I called my son. Think about Joseph for a minute. Think about the crazy message that Joseph has received over the past two years, okay? His wife, Mary, who's not yet married to, but he finds out that she comes to him and says, "Uh, honey, I'm pregnant, and I promise you, I did not have sex with anyone else. And Joseph is thinking, well, clearly, it's you didn't with me. And he's thinking, well, Mary's, you know, I don't want to disgrace her, because she's going to look like a lunatic already. She's claiming that she is pregnant, but a virgin. and not, And on top of that, she's claiming that she's got God's child. So, Joseph is an angel. God speaks to Joseph via a dream and says, Joseph, don't get divorced from your wife. Stay with Mary. Fast forward a little bit. Joseph now, after two years of living with Mary, seeing Jesus, God appears to him again in a dream and says, Joseph, it's time again to move. It's time to pack up and move now, tonight get your things together and head to Egypt. Why, God? Well, because there's assassins who are now coming to find Jesus to kill him. Like, at what point do you think Joseph's like, all right, this is getting out of control. Like, pregnant, wife, virgin, God's child, I don't know, that's kind of, it's hard to make sense of. And now assassins are coming, I mean, it sounds like an episode of like 24 or something. Like, but what I love about what Joseph response to God in all of these things it's slightly overwhelming i think we'd all agree that what's happening with joseph is overwhelming but i love that joseph is just obedient unquestionable in his obedience he gets up immediately and takes his family mary and jesus to egypt as i've thought about obedience a lot just this week of how is that possible that joseph could respond to God's call on him in such dramatic and immediate ways. And I wrote this down, and it, uh, I hope it resonates with you, but obedience breeds obedience. Meaning, when you're obedient in one situation and God calls for you to be obedient in the next situation, obedience gets easier as you become an obedient person. Many of us have a hard time being obedient because we don't have a track record of being obedient. We pick and choose where we want to be obedient. That's why obedience is so difficult. And that's kind of the center, the kingdom of I is I will pick and choose when I want to respond to what I want to respond to. I see with Joseph, I see with Mary, I see with the Magi. Gosh, imagine the Magi. You want us to follow what? A star? And how many miles? That's insane. These were wise, educated men. You, we're going to follow a star, it's going to land on the house of a child? That's ridiculous. Who does that? My wife is pregnant with whose child? Like, the things that God was calling these individuals, Joseph and Mary and the Magi to be obedient with, are phenomenal. I can't understate this or overstate this, God's not calling me to that type of obedience. My obedience that God is calling me to looks so dramatically different. I've never gotten a message, Michael, pack you and Kyla up. There's assassins coming for your children. Michael, will you be obedient and just sit with me in my scriptures? Will you be obedient and and stop that specific sin that you keep giving way to? Obedience breeds obedience. If you start practicing being obedient with the things that God's calling you to be obedient with, I guarantee you will cultivate a lifestyle of being obedient. Thus, when God comes to you again six months from now, it will be easier to say yes to God because you've said yes to Him in the past and you've seen how God has provided for you. The story takes a tragic turn In Matthew chapter 2, verse 16 and 18. When Herod realized that he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Meaning, if you were a kid aged two and under, um, death sentence two years and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. It was a fulfillment of a prophecy that when the men and women of Israel were carried off into exile into Babylon, Rachel, who is uh, personifying Israel, is Israel was weeping as they were being carried off into exile. Herod was furious, so furious that he gave the order to kill, to murder. Like, I can't imagine being the guard who was carrying out that command. You want me to go take my knife to a two-year-old and do what? Like, this is a real story. Like, this happened. You won't see it in the movies. You won't see it in any Hallmark card. But this is the tragedy of Christmas. There were some who chose to worship, and then there were some who chose the kingdom of I to protect the kingdom of I and to murder Jesus or try to murder Jesus. Now, I don't want to overstate this. There were not thousands of children that were killed here, in this assassination. We actually have a good idea. It was somewhere between probably about 25 to 50 children that were murdered uh, at Herod's command. And I know that because Ezra 2, verse 21 says, post-exile, that there was 123 men that went back to Bethlehem. And you take from when they went back to the time they're there now, there's about roughly 1,000 people living in Bethlehem, and scholars much wiser than I have deduced that we're looking somewhere between 25 to 50 uh, boys that would have been murdered uh, under Herod's command. Now, you might say, well, that's in the grand scheme of things. That's not a big number. It is if it's your kid. It is if it's your town that you're living in. Woburn's much bigger than Bethlehem, about 40,000 people, give or take. Imagine if there was 50 deaths of two-year-old boys and under who were murdered. Imagine the pain. If you're a parent, you get this. And by the way, you don't even have to be a parent to get this. What kind of command comes from who is this man that he would kill, murder, These children, this is the story of I murder. And I wanted to finish with that, not on a depressing note, but I wanted to return to the question that I opened up with. If God knew that this was the world as it was, that there were the Herods, there would be a mass murder of 25 to 50 young boys that were slaughtered at some soldier's knife? If he knew just how bent on evil and wicked humanity had become, why did he step in? Like, I look at the story of Herod, and it brings tears to my eyes that that happened. But I see a lot of Herod in myself. No, I've never killed anyone. No, I've never given a command to kill anyone. But I see what drove Herod to do what he did. The kingdom of I was being dethroned, and he didn't like it. When my kingdom of I is beginning to get dethroned, I might not have the response or reaction of Herod, but my response and reaction is still sinful Uh, all the same. If God knew, and I should stop saying if, because God did know, why did he send his son into a world such as the world of Herod? And I'll finish where we started. God sent his son to communicate to you uh, that you are greatly loved by God. But because of rebellion, because of sin, because of I, murder, we have been, there is a break between us and God. And there was only one way that I could ever get back into right relationship with God. And God said, I'm going to send my son to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. God's love is relentless. God's desire to be restored and reconciled, redeemed with His people, you and I, drives him to send his son. So this morning, I knew it would be kind of a weird finish. Like, how do you finish on such a sad note of the loss of so many children? And the thing that encourages me is that God still came despite the world that he stepped into. There is two responses you and I can have to the God who sent his son. You can worship him, and to worship him means to adore. Uh, Worship means to obey. Worship means to trust. The Magi did that. Joseph did that. Mary did that. Or you can ultimately reject the God who sent his son for you. And you can say, I know who is king of my world, and his name is I. My heart and prayer for us this morning on a very snowy day is that our response to King Jesus would be one of worship, would be one of obedience, would be one of trust. We learn from Mary. We learn from Joseph. We learn from the Magi. They did it well. We don't worship them. We learn from them. And this morning, it's frightening to me to know that I can look in the mirror and still see a lot of Herod looking back and know that the greatest threat to my kingdom of I is the kingdom of Jesus. And my heart this morning would be to say, if you are still sitting at the center of your world where I is your king, Confess this morning that Jesus is your king. And let your response from this day forward be one of worship, where you trust him, you're obedient to him. And no matter what God calls you to do, Allah, Mary, Joseph, the Magi, that you would be one who responds to God in all things at all times. Father God, I just pray that uh, this morning... It is a story of contrasts, a story of a group of men who chose to respond to you, God, and worship Jesus, literally bow down and worship him. But the contrast, Jesus, is that there was another man named Herod. who chose not to worship, but chose to remain at the center of his world. And in order to protect that, he tried to kill the one true king. So God, I do thank you that you protected Jesus. I give thanks that you spoke to Joseph, to Mary. and that they responded to you in obedience. God, I pray that uh, our response to you this Christmas season, and literally just even in the next few days, is that we would not guard and protect the kingdom of I, but that we would surrender that, and we would worship the one true king, being Jesus. That we would be obedient no matter the cost. That we would trust you no matter what you call us to do, no matter where you call us to go. And God, more than anything this morning, I thank you that you stepped in. Despite humanity being as sinful and as wicked and as evil as we are, God, I thank you that you chose to dwell among us. God, I thank you that you chose to demonstrate your love for us in sending your son, Jesus. God, I thank you that you chose to redeem and restore and reconcile people back to right relationship with you through your son. God, if there's anyone here that just does not know of your love, open hearts, God, to receive that today. God, if there's anyone here today that is unreconciled who just doesn't know, has not had a relationship with you restored. God, let that happen today. So Jesus, we give thanks that you came. We give thanks that you stepped into this world to love and redeem those that were separated from you. I pray that in Jesus' name.